you know, auctions are auctions are fun, and 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 we're going to be continuing to figure out the best way to deploy them to the benefit of the market and our clients. And we're investing as I speak in our own kind of applications and software to be able to really make sure that we have something that's really good that we can build on. What's going on, everybody? And welcome to Collectors Gene Radio. This is all about diving into the nuances of collecting and ultimately finding out whether or not our guests have what we like to call the collector's gene. If you have the time, please subscribe and leave a review. It truly helps. Thanks a bunch for listening, and please enjoy today's guest on Collector's Gene Radio. For someone who's the founder of one of the most well-known, rare, pre-owned, independent, and vintage watch platforms, you would think that all their energy goes towards watches. And while the majority does, founder Silas Walton has an affinity for arguably the most luxurious brand that there is, Hermes. The brand history for Hermes dates back to 1837 when they were making luxury saddles and harnesses for noblemen. But somewhere around the 1950s, they started to craft home goods out of silver. Now, these objects were truly quite utilitarian and range from cigarette pots to wine coasters and bottle openers. And while these items are quite rare and extremely difficult to find, Silas and the team at Eclectic Man have made it pretty easy for you to collect as well as they recently started selling them on their website. Don't worry though, we chat about watches too. It's my pleasure to present to you Silas Walton for Collectors Gene Radio. Silas, thank you so much for joining me today on Collectors Gene Radio. Pleasure being with you, Cameron. Thanks for the invitation. Absolutely. So you're the founder of A Collected Man, and we'll definitely talk all about watches later for sure. But just briefly, you weren't necessarily interested in starting a watch website, right? Rather, you you pretty much saw an opportunity to kind of just bring things digital when the pre-owned space was kind of in its infancy. Yeah, that's exactly right. I always describe myself as a sort of accidental watch collector in the sense that, you know, much of my passion for watch collecting per se came after I'd been doing this for three, four years. The way I entered into the space or we entered into the space was, it was a, you know, I was, I was doing an internship after business school in a private equity fund in London, a small, relatively small one. And I was meeting budding entrepreneurs and reading impressive uh, business plans and being inspired on a, on a daily basis by all these interesting people with all these interesting ideas, you know, getting up and, and changing their lives, you know, in a, in a short space of time by virtue of their conviction that they could do something better or they could offer something new to the market. And during that time, I was in the process of selling. I needed to sell a couple of watches that I owned that I'd paid for in a previous life when I worked in a law firm as a paralegal. And that experience told me a little bit about the options available to me at the time at a, at a lower level, at a sort of more entry level, let's say, quote unquote, whether it was eBay or whether it was an auction house or whether it was selling to a high street pre-owned boutique. And that experience informed my thinking about my own options and then ultimately made me realize a few things about the market, which at the time felt very underdeveloped, very non-digital and relatively unsophisticated, particularly at the sort of higher end of things. I think the mid-market was already starting to be commoditized. And so you had big players like Watchfinder and others in America who were sort of, you know, 
relatively sort of advanced in pushing out the envelope as far as pre-owned retail was concerned. But when it came to the rarer stuff or the more sensitive stuff or where there was, you know, less of a market, you know, other than gentlemen like Steve Halleck uh, on the West Coast of America, there were very few people interested, for example, in the um, in the independent watchmaking space and it wasn't that much sophistication even on social media you know it was still quite a basic space and so recognizing that there was a lack of attention given to the kind of higher end or more niche end of the market realizing that the market was going increasingly kind of visual and lifestyle orientated recognizing that things are moving away from the forums and and more and more potentially to online sales at a distance even for secondhand goods where condition is key, you know, even, you know, particularly when you're talking about 50, 60, $100,000 or more, all those things drove me to this conclusion that there was an opportunity, even if it would take a while to capture, if you could find this niche and, and occupy it, you know, at the, at the top end of the space. And so, yeah, we, we pushed for a digital first model, social media friendly model, a trust, you know, absolutely kind of like first and foremost, approach our uh, trust-centered kind of business model and that was eight years ago and and today we're in a in a market that's changing rapidly and that's highly you know much more developed but it's still you know a really exciting space to be in and you you've since grown to love watches i mean you collect them and we'll definitely talk about watches later otherwise i think our listeners will exile me but i want to start today about by chatting about a brand that's really near and dear to you uh, which you also sell on the site, but mainly collect. And that brand is Hermes. Um, most people know Hermes for, you know, Birkin bags or their infamous blankets and watches, bracelets, even furniture, which some people may not know about. But what most people don't know about the brand is that they started out making like these luxury saddles and harnesses for noblemen back in, well, I mean, 1800s, maybe, um, and then in the 50s era, maybe a little bit before that, they were creating goods out of silver, like home goods. But um, home goods back then were cigarette pots and ashtrays, uh, which you've come to love. Can you tell me how this all kind of started? Yeah, so I definitely have a fondness for and a soft spot for kind of mid-century Elmer's vintage silver antiques, not just silver, but white metal typically. I used to spend hours just kind of scrolling through eBay, almost purely out of self-entertainment, like looking for something interesting that caught my eye or something different or like challenging myself to find something, you know, unexpected because, you know, there are so many opportunities out there, not just there, but at auction and elsewhere to find these kind of like, you know, uncut gems or these, these, you know, these diamonds in the rough. And what I found was, you know, you'd look around and look around and look around and then suddenly, you know, this incredible Hermes ashtray would pop up silver ashtray that that kind of the design was so tasteful and reminded me of so many of the things that I liked, for example, in watchmaking, you know, some kind of guilloche, for example, some kind of engine turning pattern. But equally, that perfect combination of, of subtle beauty in its aesthetics mixed with a pretty utilitarian purpose for overriding sensibility. And so the ashtray, for example, that I mentioned, imagine just the equivalent of a small, shallow 
plate or pot, but in this case, you know, made of silver with, you know, engine turn patterns, concentric engine turn, uh, engine turn patterns going all the way around the base and on, on the side. And then you'd have like two small pieces of kind of like, I don't know how to describe it, two like small cigarette or cigar rests on either side so that two people could share this ashtray. And then you'd have this sort of almost like horse riding inspired, almost bridal piece of metal that would come out from the side to kind of like inspire or reference the equine theme that kind of went through a lot of, of, of vintage silver armes from the period. And it's just, it's such an attractive classical design. I mean, I can see mine now. And it's one of those things that once you've, once you've got it, you can't imagine ever not having it. And it's, it, every time you see it, you smile. And the same is true for the sort of the, the cigarette pots, which I don't keep cigarettes in, but I keep, you know, pieces of gum. You know, I have these wonderful wavy engine turn patterns. And, you know, I've always been fond of that equestrian vintage theme with Hermes. And so I have like a, what they describe as like an equestrian box with like a, a double horse head on top. And I think originally that would have been for cigarettes, but but I keep business cards and small mementos in there. I think everything back then was for cigarettes. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you're right. I think you're right. It's, yeah, and in fact, you you know, you also have like the smoking sets and, and things like that. And then... The other thing that I found myself collecting or the, the big thing that I found myself collecting is I, I have um, an Elmer's compendium from the period, which I really love, which I can only describe as a sort of a rotating cube that has a really beautiful manually wound clock on one side with a sector dial. And it has like a barometer slash weather station on one side and a compass on the other and a calendar on one. And, uh, and lastly, um, a sort of thermometer on the final side. And as objects, I just find them, you know, r- really, really beautiful. They're believed to have been designed by an architect called Paul Dupré-Lafont, who was just, you know, he was known, I think, as the architect of millionaires or billionaires. I can't remember exactly what the, the sort of term was for his style. But he, he produced these wonderful compendiums we designed these wonderful compendiums in collaboration with Hermes and they all just take me back to an era they all just take me back to an era yes that, that I find inspiring you know let's say art deco in, in in many cases but they also fit absolutely perfectly with other beautiful objects from from present day and they speak to me they seem timeless they seem very high quality and I've not really seen things in their kind of equivalent ilk that have, have impressed me more that you can find today necessarily. So once they fit well with, well with everything else, I, I still think that these are great examples of things that, that haven't really been bettered or bested. And so I enjoy them and collect them as much for their, their aesthetic and design value as far as it appeals to me as a, a layman, but equally or more so because I just like how they make me feel and I like seeing them in my home and I like juxtaposing them with, you know, books and old bowls of, of matchboxes from old hotels from the US from the fifties and, you know, this and the other. I mean, Hermes has always been a very desirable brand, right? I think right out, right out of the gates, they were a luxury brand, um, even when they were making the saddles and harnesses. But what do you think makes their designs of, I guess, these silver goods in particular? So, 
they're so decadent, but they're they're really understated and elegant at the same time, which is very hard to do. Yeah, it's a it's a good question. I think that if anyone else produced them, you might feel like they were too much. But because it's Almez, because they have such an incredible history and association with, you know, a very particular heritage and have such huge credibility in the manufacture of and design of highly qualitative goods. And because their designs are so evocative and tied to, you know, key periods of design history, they just, they feel so at home, both when they were designed and, and in the kind of like, you know, the, the catalog of, of, of objects of the home that, that, you know, would be association associated with, you know, a, a person enjoying a, a pretty high quality of life and, and living in a pretty beautiful space. But they also just, they're, they're timeless. They look great today as much as they did in, in the 50s. And, you know, it reminds me of something else. I, I saw that the C- CEO of Instagram lives in London now, recently went to the Design Museum. Uh, he posted about it in one of his stories. And I was there, I think, the day before seeing one of the ex- exhibitions and then I popped up to the permanent exhibition and saw the same thing as he did coincidentally. And you look around and it's just, it's so obvious when you look around intuitively at what makes great design. It doesn't mean that it's easy to, to enumerate it or to, or to explain it, you know, on the spot like this, but you can just feel instinctively, you know, that really screams original thinking but but carefully considered and and well made because it doesn't have to be an object of craft it can be you know an industrial design but where where everything is just right and you know you can you can really appreciate the careful thought and and consideration went into design that i find inspiring and and that's that's why i think these sort of objects look as good today as they as as they did then and and why people still find them as compelling as they do and why people still collect them yeah you really can't not appreciate them especially from from a just a, a design aesthetic standpoint and they are truly quite rare i mean so as a collector how hard are these to find so i'm very lucky i liked these things going back 6 7 8 years uh, I was already interested in these things. In fact, I think I think I was interested in things like this going back 15, 15, 16 years when I used to go to, you know, these little flea markets in France on the side of, you know, motorway roads and just kind of go pouring through old cupboards of like these bits of furniture that were gathering dust by the side of the road in the hope of finding, you know, an, something in the drawer that was not appreciated and, uh, you know, almost like a hidden treasure. So... I've always been interested in this sort of thing. Um, I'm very lucky today because I, I'm surrounded by people at ACM that have, you know, a, a really considered eye and an eye for quality. And we're very good at, at looking around and, you know, being able to tell the sort of the wheat from the chaff, so to speak, because of the requirements professionally of what we do for everything else. And so, for me, it's often just a question of being inspired by things that we we've sold or that I've come across or that I I know that that someone in the team has has bought, and then looking looking myself elsewhere. But I'm very lucky I'm able to turn to colleagues and friends for for advice and guidance 
because they also share my passion. When it comes to these silver goods, was Hermes making these themselves or did they have a, another Maison or like a silversmith making them for them? Because that was kind of a common thing back then was to essentially partner with somebody else when you didn't have the, I guess, the infrastructure to do it on your own. Yeah. So, you know, the ashtray that you mentioned uh, was made by Javinet d'Enfer, who were f- like very famous silversmiths in Paris. I think that they made a lot of these objects for Hermes. I know that they made the Guilloche silver cigarette pots as well. I'm not sure about the equestrian boxes, I have to admit. It could have been them or it could have been somebody else by then. But yes, typically, if Almez couldn't do something themselves or they, you know, I think if they didn't have the specialism, they would turn to, you know, those who are, if not the best of the best, then certainly very much up there in terms of their particular area of craft and skill. Yeah, it seems like all of the, I guess, objects that have the engine turned design or guilloche design was definitely made by that, that Maison. It's a very, very similar design between all of them. But from what I've seen uh, from the ones that you've posted, the ones that were engine turned had like a round nameplate in the middle, maybe for like a monogram or something like that uh, for whoever owned them at the time. But do you think that having the monogram plate was reserved for certain items like the taste vins and the, and the cigarette pots and, and ashtrays and stuff like that, or, or just, you know, any sort of cylindrical design? I don't know. I, I know that my taste of our uh, ashtray has an engraving uh, from 1959 in the middle. None of my other objects other than my equestrian box. That has a personalization on the inside and it's just engraved on the inside of the lid um, in a really beautiful hand script. But I think that those spaces were you know, very much intended for, for people to personalize if that's what they wanted. But I think very often people chose not to unless they were given as gifts. That was a, a sort of a good bit of like commercial thinking on their part to kind of always leave it open to a little bit of more, a little bit more consideration. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't even look bad blank. So it's uh, it's a, it's still a nice design aesthetic. But when it comes to collecting these for the a collect a man site versus your personal collection, are there variances or leniencies in condition when it's for your personal self? Yes and no. I think the, the standard is basically the same, I would say, uh, but there's probably a bit more breadth in terms of what we offer through the website. It's the combination of multiple people's taste versus just my taste specifically. And so the, you know, m- mine is a very classical taste. You know, I, I collect mid-century Scandinavian furniture, which is, you know, is pretty, pretty minimalist. And that kind of matches with the other things that I surround myself with that I like. I'm just looking around now and it's, it's hard to describe, but everything sort of makes sense. There's a color palette, there's a style, you know, the, the Elmez objects or the, the extra clocks. Cause I, I collect vintage kind of like JLC clocks as well. So I have this JLC travel clock with a, that's Cartier signed that I like absolutely love. Well, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's something that I'm like, I'm, I've all, I'm absolutely like, I absolutely adore. And then I have like, um, a stainless steel JLC desk clock 
it's kind of a sector dial and it's a circle that's slightly raised and it's the, the size of like your hand with a manually wound movement. And, you know, that in combination with, you know, some of the Ahmed stuff and then in combination with a few other things that kind of like dot around my living room books and, you know, my vinyl player and my vinyl collection and my furniture, it all so, sort of fits together. And in that sense, it's very personal. And therefore, like, you know, it restricts perhaps what I would buy for myself versus what we can offer uh, to a broader audience through the website. There are many, many amazing things out there that just that I may not collect that I wish perhaps I had a home for or could collect or, you know, felt like would fit well in, 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 in amongst the things that I, that I surround myself with. But for one reason or another, they don't quite work. Um, but they are themselves intrinsically interesting and, and, and wonderful to look at. You've sold a lot of these items on the site already. And I'm so sad that I missed a decent amount of them. But there's one in particular that I am so upset that I missed. And that is the two-toned pair of coasters with the rope design. And, and they're really more of wine coasters or bottle coasters. Those are absolutely incredible. And I'm going to be keeping an eye out if any more pop up. But for me, if I own these, they would be really hard to let go of. So do you ever have that feeling of regret listing some of these for the site? I think that um, in the same way that when I started the business, the company, very much with a business eye first, with a sort of an, an ability to take distance emotionally from the objects, no matter how I felt about them, that you know created a good foundation to grow the company thereafter by being you know focused on the right things. I think in the same way, I uh, I'm able to like you know say to myself, well, even if I miss this one, at some point in the future. I'm sure I'll come across another similar opportunity. And, and even if I'm lying to myself, you know, and, and I won't ever have that opportunity again, you know, it, it's still, it's still a nice kind of self delusion to kind of like say, there's always hope that you're going to find, you know, something as good or better. Sadly, in, over the last eight years, it's more often the case than not that you don't. But, you know, I, there are a couple of things recently that have really like caught my eye that I absolutely loved. And I wish I'd kind of thought about more, you know, there was a George Grant McDonald, you know, decanter with this amazing sort of textured bark finishing on the lid and, and on the neck, which, which I adored or like, you know, one of the, the Henkel Zeppelin cocktail shakers, which I think are just insanely cool from the sort of thirties. I think they are thirties or forties. Yeah. They're incredible. And all the way back to like the very beginning of, of when we started to sell collectibles, there was a clock, a really simple, I think it was a Benson clock that we found, or my colleague found an Art Deco Benson clock, English made, J.W. Benson, that just absolutely, the, the you know, if you haven't seen it before, you know, I, I recommend going and have a look. It, it's like, I think on the first page of our collectibles from all the way back, or the last page, and it has a Swiss movement, and it has this really nice stainless steel case where these just beautifully patinated kind of sword hands, blue steeled hands, but with wonderful tritium like patination in the middle. The kind of almost the matchstick dagger index markers are you know incredible. The dial is unsigned. It came in like a wonderful little leather traveling case. 
you know, I, I can't remember what we sold it for at the time, but, uh, but, you know, compared to what we bought it for, it was a great deal, even after getting it serviced. But I just, as in it was a, it was a, it was a good return on investment for us as a business. But even then I remember thinking I would happily pay that or more. Um, but you can't, you know, you, you have to be able to resist that temptation and you have to be able to like push that voice down because, you know, there are always going to be things that are great until something better comes along. And if not, then having regrets is part of the journey. Are there any pieces from Hermes that you're coveting? Not really, not now. Um, I'm sure there will be. I mean, the fun of it is is in the discovery, you know, and uh, coming across something suddenly and being like, I didn't know that exists is, 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 you know, super fun. I'm very lucky. I think I was able to sort of get most of the things that I really wanted. I'm sure there are some really fantastic Elmez objects. And as you say, I don't, I don't have like a really nice set of Elmez coasters, which I would like. You know, there are other like incredible objects that they made that really speak to me, you know, whether it's the pen holders or the letter openers or, you know, things like that. There was this incredible cigarette box with two silver gilt plated dolphins, I think, or like two gilt sort of golden looking dolphins with intertwined tails. That's a little off the cuff for them. Yeah. Well, I mean, there were more things of that, of that nature, but it's just like that, that, that was a really beautiful, beautiful object. And, you know, I, I hope to find something to see something like that again soon. I, I wanted, you know, an Elmer's money clip at some point, like a vintage money clip. But oh, the, the stirrup ones that you, you've sold on the site were amazing. Yeah, exactly. Th- those were wonderful. I really, you know, I, I thought to myself, I might find something like that in due course. But, but yeah, no, no, broadly speaking, for now, I'm, I'm very happy. And, and at some point, I'm sure I'll come across something that I'll, absolutely covered that I didn't know existed, but I'm pretty, I'm pretty happy with, with where things are for the time being. Are there plans to get into more dealings of antiquities on the site and, and a broader range? Possibly. I think it's one of those things where, you know, you, you always have to be sensitive to and smart about what you focus on because you only have so many hours in the day and you can only do so much. And with the team, you know, even with the, you know, the really fantastic team that, I, that we're lucky to have at ACM, you know, you, you need to focus on your core activity first and foremost. And our core activity is watches, you know, collectibles are almost the fun things that we do on the side to show that there's more that we're interested in than simply watches, but watches need to remain the sort of overriding core area of interest. So I don't know is the answer at this point. It would be nice to and, and maybe, but there are specialists for those sorts of things, you know, outside of the things that we're selling right now. And I tend to be inclined to think that unless you're able to offer that same high level of expertise in all the things you do, that you're better off keeping yourself a little bit, you know, back and focusing on the areas where you're really able to add value. Yeah, I think the nice thing is about you guys selling this sort of stuff on the website now is that it really gives you first right of refusal for your customers when they stumble upon these things in their home or at an auction or at a sale and they don't know what to do with them. And now that they know that you sell them, it gives them an option to to reach out to you and, and gives you first right of refusal probably. Yeah, that's, that's true. Although most of the things that we offer, we find ourselves occasionally, you know, clients will consign or sell things to us of, of that nature. 
but you know, a lot of the stuff you just, you're going to discover at like 2 a.m. on eBay, right. you know, or, or like at some, you know, really niche auction house in, you know, Finland or Japan or, you know, wherever it may be, or, or some small like antique shop in the middle of nowhere in France. And, you know, that, 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 that chase is, and, and finding these kind of special things and bringing them to people's attention is, you know, a huge part of the fun. And it's definitely, you know, something that I take, you know, particular pleasure in. Love it. All right. Let's, let's talk watches for a sec. Sure. Sounds good. So before I ask this next question, you guys have written a fantastic piece on this in your journal already, but I, I just have to ask and, and it'll be easiest to hear from you and I'll definitely direct people to the article, but how in the world is your lighting and photography so perfect? <laughs> well, it's very kind of you to say, I can't speak for our photographers, but I've, you know, I've been fortunate to be able to work alongside them off and on for the last eight years. And so I've, I've seen what they do and, um, you know, our, our current photographer is particularly talented and we, we had a meeting only this morning to talk about it. You know, I, I think that we're very fond of using natural light whenever we can. Um, we're also not afraid or he's not afraid of using harsh light to, to kind of like to, to really like create harsh shadows and, and strong illuminations across particular details of watches. For things that are, you know, that have hats of three dimensionality to them, or, you know, for example, a skeletonized dial, you know, being willing to experiment with multiple sources of light simultaneously and deflectors to be able to capture not only the, the you know, the transparent aspect of being able to look through the, the dial, but also highlighting gold details or rubies or special engravings or textures you know that all comes with practice and you know we're, we're fortunate to have someone who's very talented and but also is never satisfied with with you know just the status quo i mean this this was literally the nature of the conversation this morning even after five years it's like okay so how do we what do we do next how do we innovate what do we try what are people not doing you know what are people copying what are people bored of what can we do better? What what details are we failing to be able to highlight because of the setup or the limitations that we've imposed on ourselves? And you know, I think it's that it's that spirit of sort of curiosity and entrepreneurialism as a photographer that 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 keeps keeps someone self motivated to 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 push forward and try more. But but you know, he'll be the first to admit, uh, as I would, that there are times when it gets repetitive and and you kind of find yourself stuck in a sort of a loop of doing the same thing again and again and finding the kind of the moment to break that and try something new and, and to say this can be better or this is boring, you know, is equally just as important, you know, as, as, yeah. And avoiding kind of sitting on your laurels. Well, you, you guys are in my eyes doing a, a great job on photography. I mean, I could spot one of your photos in the rough and know exactly where and what website to go to, to find it. <laughs> That's very kind. So it's no secret that that you love independent watchmakers and and uh, it, it's become a big part of your business and your brand. But are there any up and coming independents that you have your eye on that maybe haven't gone too mainstream yet? Yeah, I, I think that there are a number of really interesting uh, indies out there who are coming to the surface. You know, too, perhaps too many to even to, to even list, which I think is fantastic. You know, that that's something that was less the case a couple of years ago. There's a gentleman called, for example, Bernhard Schwintz, who's 
restarted a brand called Vinyl, inspired by a famous Austrian watchmaker and chronometer maker who, you know, has taken elements of that of that design, you know, that chronometer design, ship's chronometer design and, and reinterpreted them and and you know, applied the incredible knowledge and experience they developed, I think over 12 years working or, or eight years or five years, whatever it was, it was a long time uh, at Philippe Dufour in Philippe Dufour's workshop, who's the kind of like top finisher, I would say, or, or you know, independent watchmaker in Switzerland. You know, I think he's doing really exciting stuff. I think there are young guys like Théo in Paris and Simon Brett in, in Switzerland that have, you know, either progressed things to a stage where they're already, you know, very widely recognized or, or will soon be widely recognized, I think, for, for, for what they can offer. You know, obviously, we're privileged to work with Recep, Recepi of Acrivia and Peterman Beda, Gael and Florian for Peterman Beda. You know, I'm a big fan of Sylvain Pinault. He's a, a really interesting man uh, who has got a really interesting style and, and he won uh, a GPHG this year, quite de- or last year, quite deservedly. And then you have people like Raoul Pages as well, who I, I really, really like and really, really rate. So yeah, I think there's a lot of very promising talent coming through, and there are many, many others besides those I've just mentioned. And I think it's an exciting time to be in independent watchmaking, to be an independent watchmaker, and to collect independent watchmaking. I think we've entered an era that's really going to be increasingly fun and original and, and challenging on, on all fronts. Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the talent is better now than it has ever been, in my opinion. For sure. For sure. So I always ask this to my guests who collect in the profession that they also make a living from, but what is the challenge between keeping a watch for yourself versus selling it to your clients if it's something that happens to catch your eye? So... You know, I've been in that situation a couple of times, you know, where where things have crossed my desk or our desk and I thought to myself, gosh, I would love to I would love to own that watch, um, or those watches. But the reality is, and I think this is something that I agree with, you know, I, I think, you know, Todd Levin, um, one of your former guests, is a, a really very close friend of mine and I've always admired hugely his level of professionalism as an art advisor and the way he kind of navigates the ethical line very, very cleanly and professionally. He's on another level. Yeah, he, he is. And and I think art has obviously art collecting is is a much deeper, more developed and, and much more significant market than watch collecting is because watch collecting has really only come to the fray in the last let's say 30 years or so, 35 years. But he's very clear about the importance of putting your clients first. And I think in the very few instances where I have acquired a watch, where my knowledge or awareness of that has come about by virtue of being in the position that I am professionally, I always am very transparent with my colleagues about it. And in every major instance, where it's been a pre-owned piece, it's been a situation where it hasn't made sense for the company at the time, either from a capital perspective or from you know an, an accumulation of a particular kind of inventory perspective, where there's too much of a certain kind of thing, or you know the market price is so high that it's just 
from a business perspective, too much of a, you know, an optimization of spending perspective, not the best choice, but, but from a personal perspective, if I'm willing to hold it for two, three, four, five years, you know, it's a very different calculation. And so I navigate that tightrope as cleanly and as publicly as possible. I try and avoid situations. You know, I, I, people don't realize, but I often buy independently as a, as a collector or auction and buy stuff just like anybody else to avoid any kind of possible conflict with the company. I'm, I'm not on the sourcing or sales side of the business. I haven't been for a long time. And so I, I, it's not like I have a special insight. I don't have the inbox. I don't know what clients are offering us. I just find out, you know, a week to 10 days later when it pops up on my screen or I see it being shot or one of my colleagues tells me at a meeting, which is fantastic. But I think ultimately the people who kind of lead our sourcing and selling things, you know, side of the business, particularly my, my colleague and friend, Robert Barham, you know, are such upstanding and you know, they have a very like strong moral dimension to the way they, they think about things and also a very responsible commercial attitude, which, which basically is, you know, what's the best interest of the business ultimately. Very, 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 very rarely do the interests of clients in any way kind of come close to conflicting with personal interests. And when there is a potential conflict of interest, I can say, you know, very honestly, we bend over backwards to try and make sure that navigating that is is done in the smartest, sensitive, most sensitive and, and most kind of like least likely to keep us up at night kind of way. And 90% of the time, even when you do that, you end up, you know, passing on an opportunity because you don't want to ever find yourself in a in a compromised position. So I'm not going to suggest that it's quite as as impressively disciplined as as Todd. Knowing him for a long time, I was I was a bit blown away by just how like clear cut and strict he was. But it's the space that we're in. The reputational aspect is so important that even if you are going to occasionally make mistakes, it's so important to like try your absolute best to avoid them at all costs. Because if you if you compromise that that trust, or you you know you you fundamentally make someone you know an important client question where your sort of loyalties are, I suppose, or where your kind of principal kind of prioritization of interests are, you're you're very quickly down a um you know you know a sort of slippery slope. So it's a very long answer to a simple question, but at this level, particularly when you're talking about unique pieces or you know multi million dollar watches. I will happily compromise my own interests any day of the week over compromising the interests of our clients, whether buying or selling. And it's not from a sort of righteous, high and mighty, holier than that perspective. It's just simple common sense. You know, you don't want to ever put yourself in a position where you are suddenly having to lie to a client. You never want to be in a position where you're having to twist the truth you know, it, it, I, I, my father always used to say it costs a lot more to tell a lie than to tell the truth. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I fundamentally believe that to be as relevant today as it, you know, was the time when he told me. And, and I think that's something that we try and apply, you know, throughout the business, but we don't always get it right. And there are moments where you mess up and then you just have to sort it out as best possible. You guys have recently launched auctions on your platform. How's that been going for you? Yeah. So we, we launched auctions last year. 
We tested it with three auctions in short succession with multiple pieces uh, during the summer, and, and it went very well. And then we had a one-off, very special auction of a Roger Smith uh, unique piece in, I think it was late November of last year, uh, that we commissioned from Roger about four or five years ago, where a percentage of the proceeds went to helping you know, support and encourage British watchmaking. Was that piece always meant for an auction? Yes. Uh, no, no, no. Not originally, but, 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 you know, as time passed and things aligned and, and conversations were able to happen with Roger, it just made perfect sense. And I'm very glad we auctioned it because it sold for a world record price for a series one. And, um, it was incredible. And, and, you know, yeah. And, and thank you. And, and in the process, you know, I think we gave 110,000 pounds to, to fund, you know, um, wow you know, this, this new educational kind of initiative through the Alliance of British Clock and Watchmakers, uh, chaired by Roger Smith. And, um, you know, if, if, you know, hopefully that will do some good, but, but it's good, you know, auctions are, auctions are fun and, and, and we're going to be continuing to figure out the best way to deploy them to the benefit of the market and our clients. And, we're investing as I speak in, in, in our own kind of applications and software to be able to um, really make sure that we have something we can, that's, that's really good that we can build on. When it comes to collecting watches for your personal collection, are there specific brands that you're looking for? And w- what are the attributes that excite you the most? You know, are you, are you a dial guy or a case shape guy or a case condition guy? So, you know, when I started, Buying watches, let's say for my personal collection, it was an extension of two things. One, as a businessman, seeing how the market was growing, I saw the opportunity, you know, in those early days to put money into something that I thought would be a better store of value and had a good chance of appreciating, which, you know, on a small personal level, that speculative element was, 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 I think, sensible. I didn't have a lot of money. I didn't have a lot of disposable income. And and so you had to, you know, I, I always said to people, open the door with your your brain and let your heart walk through it if you're going to make an emotional decision at the very least make sure that there's like a rational rationalization of it as well if it's a significant investment that was how it started and then over the years as i was fortunate to be able to kind of you know afford to to spend a little bit more and and invest a lot of the things that i like in mid-century scandinavian furniture or mid-century Hermes silver objet d'art, let's let's say, or you know, all sorts of other things that that are of a similar ilk and, and nature. You know, they all share this design that speaks to me, or a provenance that inspires me and excites me, or they have like a special meaning to me because of you know the, the what they represent in my life, professionally, personally, or I just kind of you know I can't help but get excited about the idea of something being really cool that other people still don't understand and thinking, you know, I absolutely want to get one of these things and have it on my wrist because I love the fact that, you know, the vast majority of people have no idea what it is and they don't really think it's anything special, but they will do one day because there's an inexorability to great craft and great design being eventually appreciated. It's never a question of if, it's a question of when even if it was appreciated at the time and then it disappears, you know, I, I really do believe that provided it survives in, in its physical intactness, at some point, amazing things, you know, are rediscovered and re-recognized. And there's something fun about doing that in, in, as a collector of watches. 
I don't have the time or the knowledge to be able to be an art collector. I would love to be an art collector. I would love to collect more and more interesting pieces of furniture. I would love to collect objects, you know, beyond the kind of safe space of vintage Hermes or whatever else it may be where I'm not taking any risk versus how I am with watches where I can really be confident about pushing out the envelope because I'm, I'm very privileged along with, you know, other people who are in- equally interested in this space to be able to see, you know, that there are these other things that are just either haven't been discovered yet because they've just entered the market. You know, watchmakers have only just, you know, launched their brands or, or things that, that have been forgotten, but that fundamentally share these incredible characteristics with other things that have since been recognized. So, you know, whether it was early Rouge Debris or early Daniel Roth or even early Frank Muller or early Parmigiani, you know, these are all brands that for a long time disappeared from the collective consciousness of watch collectors and people weren't interested. And then slowly but surely, as, as information became more accessible, as social media made it easier to share things, as platforms like Hadinki and us and others, you know, wrote about them and, and contributed some sort of value add to, you know, the collective consciousness, people discovered them. And, you know, it, it's just always fun to sort of look at where we are today and, and look where the path would probably lead us in a year or two or three and, and say, you know what, realistically, by the time that happens, I'm not going to be able to afford X or Y. But if I can apply myself now, maybe I can exit this thing that has done very well, but is now worth an amount of money that is hard to kind of ignore in terms of the opportunity cost that it represents. If I'm not like fundamentally desperately in love with it as an object, what can I potentially do with that that, you know, potentially will give me even more satisfaction over the next couple of years? And that's what I've done consistently over the last five or six years as a collector is I've, I've tried to spot things that I thought were special, tried to understand the fundamentals of that market or you know, the product design. And, and then I've tried to sort of benchmark it and acquire and collect things before they become popular, really have the time to enjoy them. And then, you know, 50% of them, I'll, I'll move on uh, when they get more valuable and reinvest in things that are once again, underappreciated, so that I can enjoy them for a few years at the very least, until once again, they become uninsurable. So <laughs> that's, that's been my approach historically. But now what I'm doing increasingly is I'm commissioning pieces from independent watchmakers, where possible unique pieces, knowing that those are the sorts of things I just won't sell in the future. And so it's a sort of evolution from buying pre-owned things that I thought were super cool to, you know, figuring out if there are things that I commission because of the relationships I've been able to develop over the last eight years through friendships and business that will potentially mean a lot more to me, like my Smith Series 1 that means everything to me. But realistically, once I've committed to them, you know, that's it. They're, they're in the collection for the long term. And uh, that's been a shift. That's been an interesting shift and in a kind of maturity or a maturing of, 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 of my sort of collecting pattern as an individual. Yeah, that, that stuff's a whole different ballgame. Very much. <laughs> very, very much. All right, Silas, let's uh, wrap it up here with the collector's gene rundown. And you can answer these questions based on any of the collections that you have. So we could talk Hermes, we could talk watches, we could talk vinyls, any of that stuff. Sound good? Yeah, sounds good. All right, what's the one that got away? Wow. Well, 
There was a, a watch that I've often referenced as being the one that got away, you know, and, and I think it's true. There was a Wurzelainen Observatoire, which carries first round serially produced watch, a round case serially produced watch with a Puzzle 260 Observatory chronometer graded movement. And I just remember having, you know, the, the very, very first one he ever made uh, in our hands and selling it at the very beginning of the business. And it had a completely different and much more pared back reserved aesthetic compared to later executions. And I'm a huge fan of kind of pared back minimalism when it comes to design. Not Spartan, but just the right side of understated. It, it, it really speaks to me and it really inspires me. And, and that watch was really beautiful and simple, but, you know, a wonderful, wonderful piece. And I'm very glad that it went to who it did and, and, and the collection that it ended up in. But I can't help but always, you know, think back to that and go, damn, I wish I was, you know, substantially wealthier and substantially <laughs> smarter and substantially more experienced when, when that crossed my desk, because if I'd been any, all of those things, then I would have been able to recognize that that was something that I should have held on to, but I wouldn't have met the watch collector that I did. And it was, it was the first great independent that we ever sold and an inspiration for a large part of the business. So who knows if I, if I'd kept it, maybe a lot of other much more important things wouldn't have come from it. And I'd regret that. So it's, it's a suite. I'm sure that uh, that collector knows that if they ever decide to sell it, that you're very interested. <laughs> <laughs> yes, very true. I, I've had that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> All right. How about the on-deck circle? What's next for you in your collecting? I think that from a watch perspective, I've got a number of independent watches that have been agreed with independent watchmakers that I've been commissioned or being made or will soon be um, that I'm really looking forward to from Peter Mida and Richard Precepi and others. I'm also paradoxically really looking forward to a watch that I think most people would be surprised to know that I that I like, but actually I I, I really I tried it on, thought it was amazing. And it's an uh, Hishamil, it's an RM67 in titanium, which is like a really slim slim to the wrist profile watch that that just is very light and just feels very 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 cool on the wrist. The only thing I can compare it to is I, I drive, I don't collect cars, but I have a collectible car or as Phil Toledano would probably say, like a very safe car. <laughs> I have a um, 1971 Porsche 911T in slate gray. And I just, you know, when I get into it and when I turn on the engine and, and sort of pump the gas, you know, there is something absolutely incredible about the feeling that I get every single time I do that and then I open my garage and I reverse out and I turn over my shoulder and I look over my shoulder and I'm I'm it's just the most incredible feeling and and I think that feeling I get every time I drive that car you know I think is not a million miles removed from how I think I'll feel when I put that RM67 on my wrist even if it's not so frequent because it's such a recognizable design and it's probably very similar to the feeling I had when I the first time I put my modern Rolex Daytona on my wrist, you know, three, three years ago, it's just, I think something that I'll, I'll really enjoy wearing, um, and really enjoying owning because it makes me feel good. Are you waiting for the right one to, to come around or right price? 
No, I've been waiting. I'm I'm very fortunate to to be on the list. Um, and there so you I'm, go. I'm hoping and hoping um, hoping my my ticket comes up this year. But um, you know, I'm 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 very grateful either way. Absolutely. How about the unobtainable? Maybe one you can't have. It's too expensive, or in a museum or private collection. Yeah, I think um, you know the, that list is endless. Um, but you know, there are there are these pieces you know of incredible provenance. You know, there's the first, the only stainless steel Roger Smith, or you know, the Grande Petite Sonnerie by Dufour, Philippe Dufour, or you know, the only, you know, the the kind of there's a there's a there's a Daniels and Smith double signed wristwatch out there that I I think is incredibly cool. That's uh, definitely a unicorn. You know, I'd I'd love to own a Ferrari 250 GTO. I'd love to own you know an incredible kind of James Bond Aston Martin. You know, maybe one day one of those things could, could, could happen, but, you know, the reality is sadly most likely not. And, um, you know, you have to just make your peace with that and be content with what you have. Absolutely. Have you ever driven uh, George's Ferrari? No, sadly not. I know George through the watch circles and... Um, I'm a, a big admirer of everything he's achieved and everything that he he does with with um, the Bamford Watch Department. But no, I've never I've never had the pleasure of driving this Ferrari. I think you'd like you. You guys should link up. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's um, a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure he'd let me in his car, but but I'm, I uh, I appreciate the idea. <laughs> <laughs> How about the page one rewrite? So if you could collect one thing besides your current collections, what would it be? Uh, I'd love to collect contemporary art, I think, but I think I'd love to, you know, I'd take it a step back and just say, I'd love to be able to collect something that is artistic, whether it's an object or a painting, a sculpture or some kind of installation, even photography and, and things like that, you know, with a degree of sophistication that's greater than simply, oh, I like that or like I recognize that name or I've read something about this person or so-and-so has this and that's cool and therefore, and they have good taste. Therefore, this is a good idea. I'd love to be able to dedicate a portion of my time to the kind of understanding at a fundamental level of like what makes things special. And, you know, I think at some point against his will, no doubt, I'm going to have to press gang Todd Levin into, you know, giving me a little bit of his time maybe i'll you know spend a, a weekend with him at some point in new york and, and bribe him with a few good meals but but you know <laughs> kind of just i'd love to i'd love to benefit from the insight and knowledge even at a, at a sort of elementary and entry level to you know what someone like todd with his eye and expertise looks for you can't you know compress decades of experience and you know you know, I think two two doctorates or several masters, you know, in 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 into sort of uh, you know a couple of days of conversation. But I would like to educate myself about about art and find a niche that that really kind of inspires me. And I hope to do that, but also to do it with furniture and and other objects of design, and maybe one day be able to patronize an artist in the same way that you know I, I I'm able to do that today with independent watchmaking. But, you know, all good things in, in due time and, and due course. Yeah, Todd wouldn't be so bad to learn from. <laughs> no, I think he would be uh, an excellent an excellent teacher. How about the GOAT? So anybody you look up to in the collecting world? 
Oof. I mean, funny enough, Todd would be the, the, the first person. I think, uh, Aaron Montanari, um, Aaron Montanari, otherwise known as John Goldberger is someone that I've always admired for his extremely diverse, but sophisticated taste in watches. But, but I think even more than that, you know, we have multiple clients that I, I can't reference and, and sadly talk about for confidentiality reasons and discretion reasons, but you know, their collections, not just of watches, but other things, uh, you know, truly, incredible you know there are people out there who have these insane collections of things of lots of shapes and descriptions that are just spectacular and jaw-dropping and nobody knows that they have this incredible taste and, and this incredible eye and this incredible knowledge that they've accumulated but that's their private passion and, and they want it to remain private and and so i'm extremely grateful and, and desperately privileged to be able to interact with those people on a not infrequent basis and to be able to share a little bit of little bit of their collecting passion and and you know have some really fun conversations along the way so yeah i think there are too many to list or name even if i could but certainly publicly i would say aro and todd are, are two people that, that inspire me todd's house is incredible and aro's tastes in watches and other things and his, his general spezzatura is just you know spectacular the hunt or the ownership, do you enjoy, you know, the hunt for the item or looking at it on your shelf? Both in equal measure without, without hesitation. And most importantly, do you feel that you were born with the collector's gene? <laughs> I don't know. I think that I, you know, I collected, I, I, you know, there was a time when I collected rocks, like lots of people did for a summer. I used to like dig up quartz i chisel away at quartz and chisel away at, at various rocks and try and crack them open and find beautiful things inside you know i i collected planes and 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 you know this and the other i liked having these these collections that i could understand and and sort of categorize but i'll be honest i wasn't sort of for want of a better word a sort of geeky collector either i i, I was attracted to, to interesting things at, at different times in my life and, you know, as you get older, you, you refine your taste, you stop wasting as much time and effort and money on things because you're able to better judge what will have the greatest impact on your quality of life and what will mean the most to you. So I think I had certainly a predisposition towards collecting, but I wasn't an obsessive collector. I just think that now, you know, everything has come together and that marriage of, of beautiful new things and beautiful old things and the depth information and, and the resources available and the time that I can spend and the exposure that I get to these different things through different, through different medium and through different people mean that it's become increasingly a part of my life. And so I wouldn't flatter myself to say that I had the collector's gene, but I certainly had the collector's inclination, I would say. I love it. There you have it. Silas Walton, thank you so much for coming on to Collector's Team Radio and taking time out of your, your evening to chat with us today. Thank you, Cameron. I appreciated it. And uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Glad, uh, glad we could make the time. Appreciate it. I'll uh, be sure to reach out to you next time I'm in London. I got to see this, uh, how this photography goes down with my own eyes. <laughs> Very good. With pleasure. You're, you're, you're certainly welcome. So do give me a shout. All right. You got it. Take care. Ciao. 
All right, that does it for this episode. Thank you all for listening to Collector's Gene Radio. 